All right, well, um, preaching is a corporate act. It's, um, it's not just a, a person up here performing. It's a congregation uh, together um, by the power of the Holy Spirit sitting under the, the teaching of the Spirit, uh, the, the Word of God. And I have to say that uh, this has been a very unusual um, congregation to preach to. I, have, uh, I obviously preach every week. I've preached at a lot of churches. I've done other retreats. And I really have to say that we, I have to say we all together, uh, I feel like, the presence of the Spirit has been very strong. And I don't credit that to my, my teaching ability. I credit that to the, to the Spirit and to whatever, you know, God is doing with RUF and, and to you individually. So I think, um, I think it's, a, it's a beautiful thing just to, um, to be a part of the preaching moment that God creates through the Holy Spirit uh, in this setting and with you all. And so I guess I'm thanking you and I'm praising God at the same time for what he's been doing um, amongst us. And um, we have been looking at the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, obviously, radical behaviors of the kingdom that are breaking into an empire that um, is dark and uh, doesn't really know what's going on, uh, that doesn't know exactly how to interpret these behaviors. I'm not saying that by living this way, uh, the church will always be applauded. In fact, Christ says the opposite, that it will often be persecuted for doing these things. But they're the, they're the right things. They're the way the human uh, organism was created. This is the way that human flourishing happens. Um, this is the way we need to call all people to be. This is the right way to be. This is the way that Christ was, these things. So uh, a check on anger. I mean, there's many more, but we looked at that. Uh, not being defensive, um, being generous, um, giving generously, loving the poor. And then prayer. And I would say, you know, this morning... Um, He's coming, coming to the heart of our relationship with, with, with God, the Father, who he reveals as the Father. And um, in some ways, he, he's excavating the heart of human religion, which would be true in every religion, that our prayer life is the core of um, you know, the human's relationship with God. And what he's saying here is that even the core of our relationship to God can be infected by the empire, can be... Um, full of hypocrisy, which is a scary thing. And I think that shows, uh, if you don't really believe in this uh, reformed doctrine of total depravity, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, original sin, or um, just the, the the human being, the condition now in this world is so fallen that in every way we are tainted, down to our prayer life. I mean, if anything you would think would be sacred and clean and untainted by sin, it would be this. But but the good news works all the way down to the, the liberation of our prayer life so that we pray now as authentic children of God um, and um, not to show off and um, not to manipulate God into giving us things, which is more like pagan prayer. So I want to look at the hypocritical prayer that he critiques and then the authentic prayer that he commends. And um, if you have a Bible again, uh, please turn to Matthew, in this case, 6. And verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door 
and pray to your Father who, see, who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, Father, we, we need your spirit again. Uh, he is the only teacher. He alone can um, be like glasses um, that we put on our face to see clearly. We can't see clearly without the Spirit. And um, with him on, we can see things twenty twenty, and it's beautiful. And so, at least in this time, I pray you would show us reality. <clears throat> Give us eyesight that works. Um, help us to see what is behind the visible to the invisible world all around us. And especially to our prayer life to you, Father, especially in our um, talking, our conversation with you. Let it be, uh, even right now as I pray, let it be like a child speaking to his dad and um, make it simple and to make it authentic and genuine. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so uh, as I said, hypocrite means mask. It's one of those white masks that somebody wears in the, uh, the ancient Greek theaters. And so um, he's talking about hypocritical prayer first before he gets to authentic prayer. And uh, one thing he says is that it's showy, that it's play acting in front of an audience. And the other thing that he says is that it's superstitious. And first, kind of the showy is five and six, and the superstitious is seven following. So first showy, looking good in front of other people, uh, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, this is verse 5, and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So he's kind of defining hypocrisy there as um, that they may be seen by others. It's playing to the wrong audience. You know, it's like a girlfriend that's dressing up for other guys. Or it's like a boyfriend who's talking to his girlfriend, but his eyes are on other women wanting them to see how sweet he is to his girlfriend to impress them. That's the way that prayer works. When you're supposed to be talking to your father, but you're doing it in such a way that you want other people around you to see you doing it so that they will praise you. And notice the, uh, the street corners. Um, again, that's satire. Um, they weren't literally sitting on the street corners or standing there praying. Um, he's talking about someone in a worship service in a synagogue. And you've all seen this, and I'm sure I've done this, where a person... Uh, we'll get up there, and they pray out loud in a worship service, and a lot of it is performance. And it really turns people off to the church. And, you know, it could be your eyes closed really tight or your, your fist. I don't know why you clench your fist when you're praying intensely, but people do that. And they pray really loud sometimes. They're really fast sometimes. And this, the language completely changes when they're praying. And then there's often that background uh, music playing, and it just creates a strange atmosphere that is um, really more showy than sincere, I think, sometimes. Not always, but, uh, but sometimes. And what he's saying is that based on the way that a, a hypothetical person like that is acting, and it could be you, um, 
but based on the way that person is acting. You know, you might as well find, uh, think of the most prominent place on your campus, you know, wherever that is, the, the, the main gathering, the square, or wherever that is. And imagine, you know, rolling up one of those things that the drum majors uh, stand on and band practice, you know, really high platforms, and you walk up there, and you, you know, get everybody's attention, and you say, We're, let's pray now. And you, you pray this long, flowery prayer in front of everyone. He's exposing, um, through that kind of ridiculous metaphor, um, what's really going on in people's hearts when they pray these showy prayers. And again, like he said last time with charity, verse 5, they have received their reward. You know, you asked for human approval, and you got human approval, and that's all you get because that's all you wanted. But you don't get the affection of the Father. Uh, It's so easy to want other people to know that you're a spiritual person, uh, you start off by telling them these great spiritual experiences you've had, which is authentic and you want to do it because you're excited about it. But then that can so easily, we all know how that slips into, you start telling people things because you want them to see you as spiritual and it's dangerous. Uh, in a sermon I was giving once, I talked about General Assembly. I mentioned that earlier. It's the gathering of all the pastors in our denomination and this one was in Atlanta, and I was, this is my second time, my second year as a pastor. And I was down there, and I was so fed up with the hypocrisy that I saw, I thought I saw, of pastors talking about how many people were in their congregation and how things were going and patting each other on the back. And I was watching that, and um, I didn't really know anybody. I was kind of a nobody. And so I ran outside, uh, ran through downtown Atlanta, literally, um, and just was praying um, you know, but I went out and prayed by myself to get away from all that. And I was telling the story about the hypocrisy of those people uh, wanting to be seen as great in front of the congregation. And I realized that I was doing the very same thing right there. And how often do you tell stories about, you know, you going off on your own to pray in a situation where everybody else is being a hypocrite? It's the same thing they're doing. So prayer, according to Christ, is simple conversation with the Father And you don't need an affected voice, you know, whether it's really quiet or very loud. Uh, You don't need an altered cadence where you go either faster or really slow. You don't need to do those things. You don't need a new vocabulary. The word just comes up in prayer, I just pray for, or I just want to lift up. Um, You know, that's not the vocabulary you normally use. So why would you do that when you're talking to your father, of all things, the one who knows you best? Or the hedge of protection language, or other phrases that, you know, I don't know. I think that's in Job somewhere, but, and it's good to incorporate biblical language, but I'm just saying these things get thrown into the prayer life of evangelicals, and I don't want to make you self-conscious. That's the whole point. Don't think about other people. Um, Don't think about uh, yourself. You're supposed to be talking to your father, and if you were talking to, you know, maybe, maybe you don't like your father, so maybe it's your mother, or maybe you don't like either parents, but the person that you feel the most comfortable with, that's the way you're supposed to talk to God. So that's showy prayer. He critiques that strongly, but he also critiques superstitious prayer, which is just as bad. And he says in verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And literally, he says, do not babble as the pagans. The Greek word is literally babel. That's where we get our word from. Do not babble like the pagans. Now I want to say uh, he is not, you know, sometimes people have applied that. You might have come from a church where they would apply that to what we just did, 
with the uh, Westminster Confession, um, where we read liturgy together. That's not what he's talking about at all. Um, he's, he's talking about what happens in 1 Kings 18. Uh, you may know the story. It's a great story. It's, uh, it's the contest of prayer between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And they, they create this prayer contest. Um, I wish there were more stories like this in the New Testament. There really aren't. But this is a great Old Testament story. Who can light uh, this pile of wood on fire? Who can create a bonfire uh, out of this pile of wood? And the prophets of Baal, they begin chanting and uh, running around in circles, doing these incantations. And they start cutting themselves when nothing's happening. And um, the result is nothing happens. And Elijah's mocking them, like maybe your God is, is in, the ba- in the bathroom. You know, he's, he's making fun of, uh, of Baal. And um, then Elijah, it's his turn, and he just says, you know, fire please. And uh, the thing erupts. Actually, he has water poured on it first. And he just talks to his, his God, you know, light this on fire. And um, why did the prophets babble on? Why, why do people do that? Um, because they're trying to manipulate God by their words. And they think if there's a formula. You know, it's like, it's like in Harry Potter when they do magic, you've got to say it just the right way. You've got to use just the right words. And then that will make the transaction occur. I mean, that's the problem with magic is it's manipulative. Um, if you, you're in control of that. And same with this kind of prayer. If I just say uh, in Jesus' name at the end, then that will make it more effective somehow. Or if I pray, again, loud enough, fast enough, I, um, I, I, I'm nervous about saying this, but I will critique um, the kind of prayers where they say, you know, I've done this, but they say, we claim your presence, God. And uh, the word claim there, if you think about that, is um, almost like we demand, you know, like we are in control of this situation, or we call down the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, I understand that to some extent. Uh, we really want him to come. Uh, we ask, you know, desperately that he come, but to call him down is not within our power. That's pagan. Or we know you've already answered what we've asked for. No, we don't know that. We are not in control. And so um, who is really in control of those kind of prayers? It's certainly not God. It's us, or we think we are. Uh, there are a lot of books. Um, I love Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Um, I love Red Moon Rising. But, again, in some of these books, you know, it's a 24-hour prayer movement amongst the youth in Europe, and it got huge, and it went on for months. This is Red Moon Rising. And um, it's great. But when people talk about that book, I often hear more about the praying than I hear about the God they're praying to. And so there's almost like a formula. If you take you know, the number of hours praying times the number of people praying times the number of ethnic groups praying times the youth of the people praying, that somehow translates into more power. And that's not true. That's just babbling on like the pagans. There was a, a magician named Simon who met the Apostle Peter and saw him praying, and he wanted the power that Peter had. And so he offered money for the formula. And Peter said, that is not how prayer works, Simon. You've totally missed it. That, that is hypocritical prayer. And unfortunately, that characterizes a lot of the prayer of even uh, Christians, even sincere, devout Christians. It does my life. And, and he's saying, you need, you need to watch for that stuff. You need to excise that stuff from your prayer life. So that's hypocritical prayer, and now he turns to authentic prayer. And it's the Lord's Prayer. And it's not showy. It's simple. And it's not at all superstitious. It's childlike. It's, it's very simple in, um, in the Aramaic. It would be, really be about uh, a little over 12 words. 
So it's incredibly simple, and uh, it's to our Father. And I would say between, I would put this and Psalm 23 and head-to-head for the most famous part of Scripture. This is a type thing that uh, we even continue to use the word thy in the Lord's Prayer when we would never use that in other parts of the Bible because it's just so famous in the King James Version, which I don't have any problem with, but that just shows how famous it is. I was a, uh, a public school teacher in uh, Tidewater, Virginia, really Tidewater, Virginia. I mean, really tiny county, second poorest county in the state. And I was um, the basketball coach, and I was ready to walk out of the locker room. I had given my pregame speech. We were heading out to the court, and the guys were just sitting there looking at me like, aren't we supposed to do it now? And I didn't know what in the world they were talking about. And then I realized uh, they were waiting for me to pray the Lord's Prayer with them. And uh, I asked one of the coaches later, you know, what about the separation of church and state? And uh, he just laughed at me. He's like, I was an idiot. And he's like, this is Tidewater, Virginia. You know, this, <laughs> you don't worry about that stuff here. And um, it's so famous that it's used in these kind of secular settings. But again, like a ritual, um, like it's magic. And that's the scary thing is you can say like 100 Our Fathers as if that will do something. It's funny how we can take the very form he's saying as, as authentic prayer and then make that superstitious. Uh, it's the opposite of its intention. And it begins with this beautiful phrase, um, revolutionary phrase, Our Father in Heaven. And in heaven there, which describes the Father, implies this God that is high above us, um, that is the creator of everything, that is in control of every event, uh, that is a spirit, eternal, invisible, unchangeable in being, wisdom, and power. So um, Jesus says, call that being, that omnipotent. I mean, no one had a higher conception of God than the Jewish people, the Yahweh, the I am. And Jesus now comes as a good Jew and says, let's call him Abba. Let's call him um, Daddy, if you will. I mean, in Aramaic, those are the earliest words of a child, Abba. It's so simple to say. You know, a child can say Papa or Mama, Abba. It's the simplest thing you could ever say. And Jesus says, let's call him Abba. And then the Old Testament has nothing like that. In the Old Testament, um, again, he's, he's deepening the Torah. He's not contradicting it. He's just deepening it. He's like, all that was true about Yahweh, but now I'm showing you more. And um, in the Old Testament, Yahweh is compared to a father, but he was never addressed as a father. So this is revolutionary. The scribes and the Pharisees were probably appalled by it. I have uh, missionary friends in Muslim countries, and they say that their friends who are Muslims are, are appalled to hear them call uh, Allah their father. It just doesn't make any sense to them. And, and Papa, even Papa, it's just, they think it's crazy. But Jesus did it. He paved the way here. And I just think um, if, you, if you wonder uh, about this kind of thing, it, it proves to me that he thought he was divine. Not that he is divine. That's hard to prove. But, I mean, who would have the audacity to do this kind of thing other than a lunatic if he wasn't what he says he was uh, or wasn't, didn't think he was what he says he was, which was God. He claimed to be God. And yet he was so wise. So wise. Look at verse 6. Um, just to increase the intimacy, he says, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to the Father who is in secret. And that word secret, if you see it in any context, always implies intimacy. You know, secret garden or, or secret anything is, is intimate. It's, um, it's very personal. So that's the point there is that you need to... I don't, I don't think that means you can't walk around. I like to walk or run when I pray. 
but I still feel like I'm in secret. And the same thing with shutting the door. That's not, I don't think that's literal. But if someone wants to have a conversation with you and you go in a room and they shut the door, you know, watch out. That's a serious, intense, personal conversation when they shut the door. And so this is a, a secret prayer behind closed doors intimacy. Uh, look at verse 8. It heightens the personal quality of the prayer. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And I think he's referring to Psalm 139 here. Uh, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. So think about this. When you're praying, uh, God knows the train of your thoughts while you're praying, which is helpful to remember. And uh, sometimes it's important to verbalize. So I would suggest a lot of times when we pray, um, it's very hard uh, to concentrate and uh, we get very distracted, and so just tell him that. You know, tell God, uh, your father, I'm distracted right now, father. I'm rushed. I, I want to get back to my projects, back to my studies, or I'm thinking about the game we just lost, or I'm falling asleep here. I don't want to be here, but I'm here, and I'm talking to you, and that's a great way to move into prayer, to move out of our distracted life. He says, your father knows, but he wants the conversation, And he wants to see um, you watching him meet your needs. He wants that. It's uh, it's all about childlike intimacy. And again, if you go to the prayer itself, two simple parts. Him on first, first three petitions about him. Second three petitions about us. Um, His glory, his kingdom, his will. And um, that's not because he's selfish. That's because we need his glory. He knows what we need most, which is his glory. And um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are right to glorify each other and to, to demand that we glorify him. That's what's best for us. So it's about him, first of all, but second, it's about our needs, our forgiveness, our deliverance. And that order does matter. He first, us second. And again, it's not a formula. It's a guide. You can pray it, uh, literally memorize it and pray it. I think it's a great thing to do. But it's also made for groups. It's not my Father in heaven it's not give me my daily bread, it's give us our daily bread, it's our Father in heaven. So it's, uh, it's also for groups. And I would suggest when you pray with uh, friends of yours, and you should get in, in, in prayer groups and prayer meetings, um, when you do that, I would suggest that the, there be a leader, and that the leader begins by saying, you know, hallowed be your name. And you leave a pause, and then the people can just fill in Um, what that means in their own words. So you would start filling the blanks like this. I pray that people would see your justice for the oppressed, your mercy for the needy, your nearness to the broken. Let your people tell stories of your fame. Be a great hero to children. I pray that Christians wouldn't make you look like a tyrant or a judge or a controlling mother or a grumpy father. I pray that pastors would not destroy your reputation. That's all under that first petition. And then the leader says, thy kingdom come. And uh, in other words, enable sinners to repent and believe. And uh, let us see more baptisms. These are the type of things you could fill in. Bring the lonely into our houses. Thy kingdom come. Free slaves from their idols. Let universities discover more of your truth. That's all part of the kingdom come. Fill music, art, literature, and movies with your beauty. Bring Jesus back. Let the king return. Thy will be done. Uh, make your people compassionate. Make us warm and humble. Enable us to reject pornography and adultery. Turn us into honest people who hate lies. 
Make us grateful, um, not complainers. Make your church a place of reconciliation, uh, not a place of division. Help us not to hold grudges. Show all the, the families of the earth, all the languages, all the colors, your glory. Bring them into your church. That's all about God. That's where we start, the first three petitions. The second three petitions are about us and our needs. And the first one, which is um, so beautiful, that God would, would accommodate uh, us and condescend to our level, he says, give us our daily bread. Um, help my friends have enough to eat. Help people to eat healthy food. Protect us from eating too much. Help me to get a good grade. I think that's part of our daily bread. That's part of our needs. Um, help me find my lost keys. Let her enjoy this date. Help the pain in my left shoulder. Heal my friend's cancer. Now, bread, obviously, I'm saying it's bigger than bread. It's um, all our physical needs. And he, he has us ask that before we ask for forgiveness or deliverance, which is, again, just his kindness, that uh, he is not aloof. He is a God of physical things, that he accommodates himself to our level, that he recognizes our needs and is giving us our... He loves to give us bread. He loves... Like, that bread was really good. He loves to give us daily bread. And uh, then he says, forgive us our debts. Uh, Forgive me for my anger at my roommate, for deceiving my professor, for being defensive towards my friends, for protecting my pocketbook or hating my enemies. And notice the second part, which is equally important, and I forgive my classmate who takes credit for my ideas, my dad who disappointed me, my sister who teased me my brother who bullied me, my ex-boyfriend who rejected me. And notice there at the end in verse 15, if you don't forgive, you can't be forgiven. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Um, I think what that means is you can't pray the second set of things. Um, If you can't pray the second set of things, then you have to wonder if you really mean the first set of things. If you can't um, say, I forgive someone, have you really been forgiven? I, I doubt it. Based on that parable I told about the guy who was forgiven everything and then refused to forgive someone almost nothing, I really doubt that you know anything about forgiveness if you can't forgive someone. If you continue to hold on to that unrelentingly, um, if you really repent, in other words, you automatically forgive people in prayer. It just has to happen. There's no repentance without that. And so that's what he's saying there. And then finally, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Protect me from being alone tonight in front of my computer. Help me fight my resentment. Give me the ability to resist food. Protect me from alcohol. Deliver me from depression. Liberate me from gossip. Those are all, all those petitions, those six petitions, that is the, the alternative resistance movement of the kingdom uh, embodied in prayer. And it is not the way the empire thinks. And praying this way alters your priorities. It uh, improves your eyesight and it transforms your desires for new things. It makes you long for new things. And so um, that's all I have to say about prayer. Um, that's all I have to say about the four practices. And now I just want to conclude where Jesus concludes with these two gates. And so if you want to just look down a little bit farther, um, this is in chapter 7. And I think I've got to say this or else you might think that the whole sermon was really uh, just something nice to hear, something to contemplate, um, some kind of lofty moral truth that is worth thinking about. But no, at the end, he, he makes you make a commitment one way or the other. So look at, uh, look at verse 13. He's comparing his sermon that he's just preached to a gate. And he says, enter by the narrow gate. 
That's, that's the gate of what he just taught. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So what he's asking you right there is, are you willing to walk through the gate? Um, are you willing to enter into that narrow gate and reconcile with people you're angry at and be meek and not easily offended, genuinely generous, praying like a child? Those are four of the many things that include in that narrow gate. And there's a wide gate. Okay, you can imagine what the wide gate The wide gate is, is not uh, having any interest in the sermon. The wide gate, you know, is just going with the flow. You know, whenever a, a, a drop of rain hits the ground, it, uh, it immediately searches out which way to go. It doesn't really think this through. Um, but when it hits the ground, it's going to go the way of the path of least resistance. Whatever takes the least amount of energy, that droplet will go that way automatically. And as more and more droplets go that way, that path, you get these things formed that eventually lead to like the Grand Canyon where all this water is going down the same path because it's the easy path. And that's the way it is with the empire. You know, the American dream, nothing inherently wrong with it, but it is the path of least resistance. And genuinely what people put on their Facebook profile page is kind of that same path. This is the way life ought to be. This is the way you ought to go. And so that might mean get a good college education and a fulfilling job, uh, marry your soulmate, you know, buy a starter home, have two kids and uh, two cars and a dog and exercise well and buy a dream house. It's got to be in a good school district for your kids. And then you slowly climb the professional ladder and you retire early. And as uh, the prophet Radiohead sings, fitter, happier, more productive, a pig in a cage on antibiotics. That's the wide gate. That's exactly nailed that in that song. Fitter, happier, more productive. Where does that leave you? A pig in a cage on antibiotics. It's the easy way. It's going with the flow. It is the path of least resistance. So that's the, that's the, the gate that is easy to go down that you don't want to go down. And then there's this narrow gate. Again, uh, no unchecked anger, no indulgence in lust, no more divorce, no judging of other people, no hatred or hoarding or anxiety. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who is an author that I love that influenced C.S. Lewis, he says, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. That is so true. The people that will say, yeah, I don't really like Christianity, well, have they actually tried it? If they have, they probably found it difficult and just got rid of it. But if you actually try it, um, it will not be found wanting. And there is no, no middle path here. There's no third way. There's no mid-sized gate or slightly hard path. He's saying, I'm giving you two choices today, uh, right now, that uh, there are these two paths and they lead to two destinies. And the two destinies are eternal destruction on the one hand. Uh, the, the Greek word is apoluo, and so that word for destruction means eternal destruction, everlasting disintegration, or eternal life. And he's not trying to scare you with arbitrary punishment like, you know, you do what I say or else. It's not what he's saying here. He could say that. But what he's doing is he's describing reality. He's warning you of the danger ahead of you down a certain path that you might go down. And he's saying that a life of forgiveness and fidelity and generosity and sincerity and trust in God, that will lead to eternal life. That leads to human flourishing. That's the way to go. That's what makes the, the human being um, 
joyful in the deepest sense. Whereas a life of hate and manipulation and stinginess and hypocrisy and anxiety, that will lead to destruction every time. He's just describing the facts about human nature. That's eternal personality disintegration. So he ends with this um, two ways and then uh, two gates leading to two ways leading to two destinies. And he leaves you there. Um, But I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to give you the good news. I'm going to end with the good news, which is there is a way out of this destruction. There is a person who always went through the narrow gate. And he never took the easy road. He always walked the hard road. And, and, and Jesus never lusted, never. And he never judged anyone, uh, although he could. Uh, he, he was never self-righteous. He never hated. He never was anxious. He was always generous. He was always sincere. But he did not receive eternal life, did he? He, was, he received apoluo. He was destroyed. He was condemned to hell, however that can be described. It's a, it's a mystery. It can't be fathomed. But it's, it's the exact opposite of what he's saying here. Go back to 13 and 14. He's saying the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. But he went through the narrow gate. He took the hard way and he was destroyed. And that's because he took our destruction. Um, because we go through the wide gate and we take the easy way. But in Christ, we receive his eternal life. That's the gospel. It's that substitution. It's, that ex- it's a great exchange, the amazing exchange that he would take all of our destruction, all of our self-destruction, and he would bear that on the cross. And he would say, this is who you are by nature, but I give you freely all of my life, all of my resurrection, eternal life, if you would just come to me. That's, that's the king of this kingdom that I've been talking about. That's the opposite of the empire. That's grace. That is the heartbeat. And the only power source of the resistance movement is coming back again and again to that incomprehensible love for hopeless sinners. Amen? Uh, Father, we um, love you. Uh, we absolutely uh, love the fact that you sent your son on uh, Jesus We love you so much. We can't believe what you did. Um, If it weren't true, I'd never believe it because it's it's too good to be true. It's too good not to be true. It's it's could not be invented. This is stuff that um, no human teacher would ever consider to think of. Only you, uh, incarnate Son of God, who came and taught us this sermon and then showed us the way to life through faith in you. And I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't believe, I thank you they're here, and I pray that you would. Um, show them um, the beauty of the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.